Some of you are like, did we just read the whole Bible? That was like... <laughs> yeah, you're welcome. The longest uh, sermon passage in the history of mankind. You're welcome. You just experienced it here at the bridge um, today. No, um, hey, good morning, everybody. It's good to see you here today. Uh, my name is Ethan. I'm one of the pastors here, Pastor Ethan. It's good to see you here um, as well. I know that we have a lot of people. It's their first time with us today. And so can we put our hands together and thank all the guests that are here with us and Thank you, for, thank you for being here. I don't know about you, but I am super excited about something that's happening seven days from now, which is Easter Sunday. Is anybody else excited about that? I'm super excited. Um, it is going to be lit. You are going to want to be here. Um, we have in the lobby these uh, awesome uh, invite cards that you can grab a bunch of these and pass them out to all your friends and family. Check this out. This is a, a, a cool shot. I would encourage you, take a picture of one of these or something. Give us a little love on social media. Uh, we actually posted this picture on all of our social media uh, platforms. Like it, uh, repost it, share it, whatever. Um, would love for you to be able to do that. Um, it is going to be fun. Uh, you do not want to miss it as well. Um, if you've never been um, uh, baptized, once you get baptized uh, sometime Soon, um, every single follower of Jesus, his first step is baptism, which is getting dunked under the water and then lifted up out of the water, which represents and symbolizes his death and resurrection. And so uh, we want you to get baptized. If you've never been baptized, there's a sign-up form, a sign-up sheet out in the lobby that you could do that. Um, as well, the, uh, I heard the Bridge College, I heard college students are going like all over campus passing these cards out. And so uh, you're going to want to do that. Good Friday is, is on Friday as well. Um, we're actually partnering with five other churches in the city to do a Good Friday a worship gathering here Friday night. And so if you, uh, if you can be here for that, that's going to be a lot of fun as well. Is there anything, I feel like, I feel like there's 47 things that I needed to say about um, Easter, but I am excited about um, Easter and I hope you are too, all right? So why don't you pray with me and let's um, in, invite um, God and his spirit to move in our hearts this morning. Let's pray. Father God, um, we just come today and ask for you to uh, move in our hearts for a few minutes that we have uh, this morning, and we ask that you would take um, a complicated passage um, and encourage us and instruct us and inspire us for what you would have us to do today. So Lord, we need you, and uh, we ask for your, uh, your power and your uh, presence uh, to come in this place, and all God's people said, amen. amen. The title of my sermon today is Danger Ahead. Look at your neighbor and say, Danger Ahead. Touch somebody and say, Danger Ahead. Now, there, there are two kinds of people that are in the room today. Two kinds of people. Um, the first kind of person is the, actual, the person who actually respects road signs, all right? You actually follow road signs. The other kind of person in the room today is you dismiss road signs. You think they are optional for your life. I s seem to kind of fall into that category. I've never ran a red light, I promise. I've never, never done that before. Um, you know, it's good when somebody lets you know that there is danger ahead, right? Um, I remember being in high school, grew up in Myrtle Beach, Dirty Myrtle, South Carolina, and I remember uh, surfing and, 
uh, growing up surfing, me and my brother would surf together. Um, I remember one uh, specific hurricane in which I was in high school, and we decided that we would go surfing down at Pauly's Island, all right? And if you've ever been surfing in a hurricane, it can get crazy out there. I mean, depending on the wave direction, depending on uh, the wind speed, depending on the wind direction, it can get awfully nasty out there. And there happened to be these signs that are conveniently located close to the pier that tell you, danger, do not swim or surf near the pier. Now, on that day, I was actually abiding by the signs. We decided, because it was kind of rough out there, it was a little crazy, we would go about a a mile north of the pier and surf, hopefully for an hour or so, and then we would get out if we could stand it, because the waves were crazy. I remember getting out there, finally getting out there, paddling out with my brother. We're, we're surfing, we're trying to surf, it's crazy out there. We look up, and no longer are we a mile down the beach. After a few minutes, we are actually close to the pier. And in this situation, um, I'm thinking, how in the world did I get myself in this spot? You ever thought that before, by the way? Like how in the world did I ever get here? It happens to me quite often. Um, and I, re- I remember looking at my brother and said, we got to paddle back in. We've got to paddle back in. If we don't paddle back in, we're going to go under the pier. And you never want to go under uh, a pier. Now, if you're crazy, some guys try to snipe the pier and go under it. But you never want to go under the pier because there are huge barnacles and shells and oysters and all sorts of things that are on those columns of the pier that will literally rip your skin open if you come into contact with them. Now, the current at this uh, moment is going so fast, we begin paddling into the shore, but we look at one another realizing that we aren't going to make it. We aren't going to make it. We're a few yards away from the pier, and I look at my brother, and like, we're going under the pier. And we went and got close to the... I went first. I was a little bit further in front of him. I snaked the columns of the pier by God's grace, made it through without getting hit. My brother behind me went through the pylons without getting hit, except for one minor detail. Um, His leash got wrapped around one of the columns, and his board was on the other side of the column. He thought he was going to drown. Fortunately, the board gave way, broke in half. He was released and actually made it back to shore without dying. We thought we were going to die. Danger ahead. you got to pay attention if you ever see a sign, if you ever someone ever tells you and gives you a heads up that there is danger ahead. Jesus today in our passage wants you and me to understand that there is danger ahead. Jesus, if he had the opportunity to be here today, would look you in the eyes and want you to understand today that there is danger ahead. And what we're going to see in our passage today are three dangers that I think that Jesus would want us to understand. Stand. But before I dive into those three dangers, I have to do a short little contextual excursus on Mark 13 to try to help us understand why this happened and why this fits into the narrative. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm just going to go ahead and be honest and give you a heads up. I'm going to do a little bit of teaching for a few minutes, okay? And for those of you that like teaching, you're going to enjoy these next few minutes, all right? But those of you who prefer preaching over teaching, hang, hang in there. I'm going to get to preaching in just a few minutes, okay? So here, here's what's going on. Let's teach, let me teach you for a little while. Mark chapter 13 is a theological hornet's nest 
in the canon of Scripture. It is one of the most divisive chapters in the entire Bible, has even split whole denominations and seminaries and churches over the matter and the content that we find in Mark 13 because it is so bizarre and honestly difficult to interpret all the nuances of the chapter. At this point in Mark, Mark chapters 11 through 13, uh, we find Jesus in these three chapters in conflict with the religious system. If you've been here for the past few Sundays, you recognize that Jesus is in conflict with the temple. He's been doing ministry all over the region. He's been in Galilee. He's been in uh, Capernaum. He's been all over the place. He's been in the wilderness. He's been in the desert. But now in Mark 11 through 13, we find Jesus in Jerusalem, and he enters Jerusalem, which is God's city, the center of God's activity in the history of the world, and he enters the temple, and if you remember from a few weeks ago, he is completely repelled at what he finds in Jerusalem. He enters Jerusalem. Jerusalem is supposed to be the place of God's people, the place of God's presence. You're supposed to enter the temple. The temple is the place where heaven meets earth. The temple is the place where the presence of God meets the people of God. You're supposed to enter Jerusalem and actually feel close to the things of God. But what Jesus finds when he enters the city is that the complete opposite, that the people of God are actually far from the presence of God. And rather than be moved and used by God for the purpose in which he has set them there, they have completely gone opposite of what his mission and what his task is. And Jesus is repelled by the religious system system. And he essentially is turning it on its head. Now, the context of this entire chapter comes on the heels of a question that the disciples ask at the very beginning of the chapter, actually in verse 3 and 4. They ask him to tell them the signs of what he is referring to about the destruction of the temple. So everything in all 37 verses of Mark 13 hinges on the question that the disciples ask Jesus about what he said in verse 1 and 2, the destruction of the temple. What that means is that the entire chapter pretty much should be understood as a scenario that he is forecasting that will happen actually in their lifetime. Now, I know that we read this chapter when we read these things, especially if you've been in church for a long time, and you read these uh, concepts and these ideas, and it all sounds like this end times talk, and there is a little bit in there, but I would argue, and I think what Jesus is trying to get them to understand is that everything that we read primarily in this chapter actually happens in their lifetime. This, the main clue that we get for this is verse 30, where Jesus says, all this will happen in this generation. He actually means within the disciples' lifetime, this will happen. Now, Jesus is using in this chapter a style of language that is a little bit bizarre for you and me, but would have been very common for his average audience that would have been in the first century, specifically those who were Jewish. Jesus is using language and words and ideas and concepts that are Old Testament in nature that have prophetic um, ideas or have a prophetic feel and style about them. So, uh, for instance, he he says in verse 8, he talks about earthquakes. He talks about birth pains. Birth pains is allegorical. He's not meaning literal birth pains. He's using that as a prophetic emphasis of judgment that he is referring to. Verse 14, we read something crazy called the abomination of desolation. What in the world? That sounds like the movie Armageddon. What in the world is 
that. It's actually a quote from the prophet Daniel back in the Old Testament, the book of Daniel, where the abomination of desolation was something that Daniel forecasted and prophesied about that would be some kind of figure, some kind of idolatrous pagan figure close to uh, the temple in Jerusalem at the time where God's judgment would come on his people. We read in verse 19 the word tribulation. Most of us immediately think the great tribulation, the seven-year tribulation that's coming at the end times. I think Jesus is primarily referring to the tribulation that's getting ready to come in their lifetime. Verse 20, he talks about shortening the days. That's prophetic in nature. He doesn't mean that there will actually be less hours in a day. It's prophetic uh, language. Verse 24, he says the sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. The stars will be falling from heaven. The powers in heaven will be shaken. All that is allegorical, prophetic language that he's using to demonstrate the significance and the severity of the coming judgment of God. Now, a couple other things that I must say on this. In order to completely understand the timeline of biblical history, or you could say really the history of the world, you have to understand that there are primarily three main epics of time in biblical history. The first would be the time of the Jews. This would be the reign of Judaism. This would be all the way back from the beginning of the Old Testament when God began his people. This is when God started his own chosen people, primarily through Abraham and others. This is God's people, the Israel, the, the Jews. This is the time of the Jews. And Jesus is, uh, enters human history at a time where we are coming to the end of the time of the Jews. The next epic after the time of the Jews, is the time of the Gentiles. This is what Luke refers to in Luke 21, the parallel passage to our chapter today, in which he refers to the times of the Gentiles, which is the time in which we live in right now. It's the time after Judaism, after the time of the Jews, the time of the Gentiles now, between the time of the Jews and the second coming of Christ. How many of you have already fallen asleep 14 times in this? Hang on, hang on. The third epoch of time that you have to understand and recognize is the second coming of Christ. The second coming of Christ in which Jesus will actually come to rule and to reign and to set finally his final kingdom in which his people will live and abide. And that second coming has not happened yet. So what in the world is going on in this chapter? It seems to be the case, and many commentators would agree, that what we find in Mark chapter 13 is an indictment and a judgment, a forecasting of the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, and which we know from history actually happened in A.D. 70, which would be within the lifetime, just a few decades removed from when Jesus would have initially communicated this to his followers. The temple would have been originally constructed by King Solomon, and then that first temple would be destroyed several centuries before the time of Christ by the Babylonians when the Babylonians invaded God's people. And then Nehemiah would take on the charge of rebuilding the walls of the temple. And therefore, after that, the temple would be constructed in which King Herod took on the responsibility just a couple centuries before the time of Christ of reconstructing the temple. And in Jesus' day, this temple, the second temple that the disciples find themselves in and around would have been unbelievably ginormous. Um, Josephus, the historian, tells us that some of the blocks, some of the 
the stone blocks at the bottom of the temple in Jerusalem on the Temple Mount were as big, roughly, as you could say in today's terminology, as big as uh, shipping containers. Huge. Um, The Romans had built this huge uh, temple. They had reconstructed it through the finances and the resources of King Herod. It would have been an unbelievably huge, magnificent building and construction project. Many would say it would have been one of the wonders of the world in its day. But in all of its magnificence, it was completely empty of God's power. And God's people, though they were supposed to be on task and on mission with him, Jesus is saying that God is coming in judgment and he is going to completely destroy what you are seeing. And so what I would argue from our passage today, and I don't have it completely right, I don't imagine that I have all the nuances correct, and it actually isn't extremely important that we have all the nuances exactly correct for when the right explanation of each word is. But I would argue that most of the chapter, verses 1 through 31, are primarily talking about the destruction of the temple, and then the final passage, verses 32 through 37, refer to the second coming of Christ. And I may be wrong, uh, but there's a lot of people that are wrong. I don't think anybody has it completely right. All right, now this is where we are at. How many of you are ready for the preaching after the teaching? (laughs) I, I am. Three dangers. Here we go. Three dangers. Three dangers that Jesus would want you and me to know based on this passage. And I think the implications are concrete and the implications are sure regardless of where you fall on the exact eschatological determination of the verses. The three dangers. Number one. Number one. The danger of false fascination. The danger of false fascination. A couple months ago, my brother and I uh, with my wife and my sister-in-law were in New York City. And if you've ever been to New York City, there's a place called Chinatown. And you can get all sorts of cool stuff in Chinatown. Uh, you, 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 can get, uh, you can get a coach bag. I mean, you can get Michael Kors. I mean, you can, get, you can get a Rolex watch. And my brother decided that he was going to get a Rolex watch. And so we had to navigate, you know, the streets if you've ever been there. You have to kind of, it's, like, it's kind of like the underground church. You kind of have to... You kind of have to hide what you're doing. It's, it's a little bit shady, and I'm not going to lie. The, the first time I walked in one of those shops, I was a little freaked out. And, uh, but I remember he, he, com- he comes out, and he actually has this, uh, this Rolex watch that he paid $75 for. Um, <laughs> looked pretty cool, but it was actually a fabrication. It was a fabrication of the, the real thing. It was, it, it was false fascination. I'm going to tell you, he was so fascinated about that watch. I mean, he was so happy about it. I mean, he was texting his, texting his buddies. He was taking a picture. He was showing people. I mean, it was, it was really sweet. Um, but it's, it's a fabrication of the real thing. And what the disciples here in this passage, they, there is a danger of false fascination. Verse 1 says this. They say, look, teacher, Jesus They say, look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. They're talking about the temple. Look at the temple. That thing is amazing. Isn't that thing awesome? It is incredible. Jesus, look at that, man, the stones. on. Can you imagine how long it took to build that? This thing is absolutely amazing. And the wonderful buildings, this 
They're fascinated, fixated, uh, but they're actually fascinated on the wrong things. Do you know that it's easy to get fascinated on the wrong things? I mean, we, we, we live in a world, I mean, we live in a world for, for centuries that has been fascinated religiously on cathedrals. I mean, the amount of, and they're beautiful, but the amount of money, the amount of energy, the amount of hours into bricks and mortar, and though I appreciate it, I mean, fascination with cathedrals or organs or steeples or stones or the beautiful edifice of the building and the, the monument that we have built and constructed for God. And I don't think God was in the business of building monuments. I think he was in the business of building a movement, movement of his, of his gospel and his people. You see, it's, it's easy to be fascinated with the things of God rather than God himself. Um, am I preaching to anybody here today? I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe, that's only, maybe that's only true of me. Um, it's easy to be fascinated with the things of God rather than God himself. What we do here, what we are about, is about God. It's about, it's about him. It's about his glory. It's not about a preacher. It's not about a, a pastor. It's not about an electric guitar. It's not about a cool band. It's not about an awesome ministry or an awesome program or facility or anything else. It is about God, and we have to be in the business of being fascinated with God. Are you fascinated with God? Like, are you fascinated by him? Is, is he amazing to you? Is he beautiful to you? Have you? Do you long for him? Do you look for him? Does you find your heart being fascinated with him, or do you find your heart often being fascinated with the things of God? And the disciples had a false fascination primarily with the temple and the things of God. The other thing that the disciples had a false fascination with was future signs of the times. Uh, verse 4, it says this, tell us, speaking to Jesus, when will these things be? Everybody say when. When, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? See, the issue with the disciples, and we see this over and over again, the issue with the disciples is that they're more concerned about the when than the who. They're, they're, they're more concerned about the when than the who. They're more concerned about the when of the end times than the who of the end times. Uh, if you fast forward into uh, the book of Acts, Acts chapter 1, Jesus has already gone to the cross. He's already gone to the grave. He's already resurrected, and he is now with his followers and his disciples, and he is about to leave. I mean, imagine Jesus. He has spent years with these guys. He has invested in them. He has educated them. He has developed them. He has encouraged them. He has brought them along. And Jesus, he's at his last moment. He's at his last scene with his disciples. And what do they ask him? They ask him, hey, Jesus, when will the future kingdom be coming? Jesus is like, no. <laughs> Guys, it isn't about the when. It's about the who. Why, why are you so fascinated? Why are you so fixated on the when? It's about the who. You think, I, I, I think that sometimes, um, I think sometimes we're more fascinated with the end times um, than the God of the end times. You know, like, the best thing about the end times is that we get to be with Jesus. I mean, that's, that's what it is about, but there, 
And we have a tendency to get fixated and fascinated on the wrong things, and Jesus says it's a significant danger. Um, there was a book that was written a few decades ago, actually 30 years ago. There was a book that was written that became very popular, sold tons of copies, uh, caused a lot of energy, a lot of fascination um, in the church world, even in the culture at large. The title of the book was 88 Reasons Why the Rapture is Happening in 1988. And you're like, did it happen? No, it didn't. It didn't, it didn't happen. Um, and for those of you who, um, maybe you're new, maybe, maybe you're not a Christian, maybe you came here with a friend today, maybe somebody drug you here, um, and you finally accepted the offer and said, I'll finally come to the Bridge Church. Um, I, I want to apologize for the crazy Christians that are out there. There's some crazy Christians that are out there. I get a little crazy sometimes. We all get a little crazy. But there are some crazy Christians out there. We have the tendency, for whatever reason, to get a little kooky sometimes. And I just want to apologize on their behalf if they haven't apologized to you. I remember growing up, um, me and my dad, we loved to fish. My dad is a huge fisherman. Um, I remember growing up, and we would go fishing offshore. Um, we had a friend who had a boat. He was an older gentleman, and he would take us uh, fishing. Um, he was didn't have his captain's license. We would still pay him under the table. It was a bad idea. We, uh, uh, we would go fishing, and we would go about 30 miles offshore from uh, Myrtle Beach, and he was a master fisherman. I mean, he had all the coordinates on his GPS. He knew exactly where all the ledges were. He knew where all the reefs were. We could get right on top of the fish. He would say, drop your lines down, and literally, bam. I mean, as soon as it hits the bottom, you're nailing fish. I mean, you're pulling up grouper, black sea bass, grunt. I mean, you just name it. It was, it was amazing. We'd come back with coolers literally full of these fish. We'd catch our limit almost every time. Now, the problem with this guy who was the captain, uh, he was actually a false captain, but the guy who was a captain is he had this fascination with something called Bible numerology. You ever met one of these people before? Uh, so if you don't know what that is, Bible numerology, there are some significant things about numbers in the Bible. Number seven is the number of completion. Uh, number 12, 12 tribes of Israel. Number three, uh, representative of the Trinity. I mean, there's, there are some things that are important about certain numbers. But Bible numerology, these people go crazy. All right. Like, yeah, I was um, like literally, let me say something like this. Yeah, if, um, I, was, I, was, I was looking at Romans chapter 12, uh, verse 3. Did you know that that is one, two, three? And if you look at the verse and you look at the words and the number of words that are in the verse, and if you uh, take the third word and then uh, you use that word, and if you take three minus 12, that's nine. And if you go back to Genesis chapter nine, you'll find that that same word is in Genesis. And uh, that's why Jesus is coming back on September 14th, 2007. He literally said that. He, like, literally, he said that. I mean, and so, so we, we would fight one another to see who, who wouldn't have to sit in the seat beside him for three hours driving out into the ocean because he was going to do that the whole time. Um, I mean, just, just, just bizarre. Now, I will be honest. Um, the first time he predicted that Jesus was coming back, I got a little nervous. I thought he was, I thought he was, I was like, in, in case this guy is right, I'm going to, you know, like it's, it's. but after like four times of failed attempts, we're like, nah, nah, man, yeah. See, we have a tendency to 
from false uh, fascination on everything other than God. Like God wants you to be fascinated with him today. Like God loves you like crazy. It, it's about him. It, it isn't about anything else. The, the way that one of our church values, the way that we say it here at the bridge is, it's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. It is about him. And we want to do everything that we can within our power to point people to him. I, I, I say it trellis, almost every trellis. My goal in a sermon is to try to Jesus juke you as many times as possible. I want to say Jesus like 47 or 87 times in a sermon. I want it to be about him. And all of this, everything that we see, everything about this chapter is primarily about Jesus. See, Jesus is walking into Jerusalem. Jesus is walking into the temple, and he's demonstrating for everyone that the temple and the Old Testament and everything that that was about pointed towards himself. It was about him, the sacrificial system in which you would sacrifice animals, shed their blood in order to make atonement for sins. What's that about? It's about Jesus. Jesus is our sacrifice. He went to the cross in which he shed his blood for your sins and mine. It's about him. What about the high priest or the priestly system? There were priests that worked and were responsible for the temple responsibilities and the sacrifices and all the ins and outs of the temple. They were the ones that were mediators between God and man. Even one day a year, the high priest would go in to the Holy of Holies to make atonement for the sins of the people. And Jesus is saying, I am the great high priest. Hebrews tells us that. It's about me, the priestly system. It was about me, the holy of holies. We don't need the holy of holies anymore because Jesus is the true holy of holies. There is no temple anymore. It was destroyed. It was torn down. We don't need a temple anymore. Why? Because Jesus is the new temple. It's him. Which means when you find him, you find everything that you need from God. It's beautiful. It is about him. And the best thing about the end times is that we get to be with Jesus. And I just want to say, by the way, some of you walk in here today and you're in a tough situation. Can I get an amen? Um, you're in a challenging situation. You're in a frustrating situation. Perhaps you walk in here today and you are in a broken situation. Perhaps you're in a dark um, situation. And I felt like I got this word this morning. Um, Jesus is an expert in grave situations. Jesus is an expert about situations. When you're in the bottom of a pit, he's an expert about pit situations, being in a pit. He's an expert about being in dark situations. Why? Because he knows how to get out of it. They're in a situation. There wasn't a situation in which Jesus found himself that held him down. There wasn't a situation. There wasn't a scenario. There wasn't a grave that could hold him down. There wasn't enough darkness in the world that could keep him down. He broke out of it. And Jesus ushers you. He gives you light. He gives you resurrection yourself. There isn't a situation in your life in which Jesus doesn't have the power to set you free and bring you out of it. You'll never find yourself in a grave situation in which God doesn't have the ability to minister to you, to love you, to change you, to come into your situation. And it doesn't matter who left you. 
It doesn't matter who abandoned you. It doesn't matter what they did. It doesn't matter where you find yourself. Jesus has the ability to love you and to meet you in that situation and to bring you out of it today. All you have to do is trust and follow him. How many dangers am I through so far? Is that only one? Oh, oh boy. Somebody say, Lord, help us. Number two. So not just the danger of false fascination, but the danger of comfortable Christianity. This is like a series. I got to go quick. Um, just out of curiosity, how many of you like to be comfortable? Raise your hand nice and high if you like to be comfortable. Um, don't lie in church. All of us um, spend our energies throughout our life trying to be comfortable. It's natural. Um, we, um, this is crazy to me. Uh, we have vehicles, by the way, and those vehicles have the ability to go at high speeds. And those vehicles um, have leather seats in them. It's amazing, leather seats. And then there's these little holes in the dash that blow cold air on us whenever it is hot outside so that we wouldn't suffer in a hot climate. Cold air comes out of these. It's amazing. It's like a miracle. Cold air just comes right out of these. And then we have buttons. The buttons are amazing. We have a, a button that we can press that warms our butt when we sit in the seat. It's amazing. And some of you, some of you have a button that will actually cool your butt in the seat. You, I mean, don't, don't tweet that. Don't tweet that. That would not be, not be, not be good. What Jesus is warning you and me of today is... A comfortable Christianity. He tells his disciples in verse 9, for they will deliver you over to councils and you will be beaten in synagogues. That doesn't sound very fun, Jesus. Verse 12, and brother will deliver brother over to death and the father is child and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. Verse 13, and you will be hated by all for my namesake. Uh, Jesus isn't sugarcoating the reality of what he's calling his followers into. Do you know that Jesus never sugarcoats it? At one point he says, like, it, it, eat my body and drink my blood. You're like, what? Jesus, like, that, that, was a little, that was a little rough. Could we tame that down? A little, people aren't going to come back to church if you say that. Like, no. Jesus. The disciples have a view um, that they're going to be big shots in Jesus' kingdom. They have a view that they're going to be comfortable in Jesus' kingdom. They have a view that they're going to rule and reign, and they're going to be ballers, and they're going to have Cadillac Escalades with big rims, and it is going to be on point, and Jesus is trying to get them to understand that's, that's not what comes with my kingdom. My kingdom isn't a kingdom of fighting, but a kingdom of faithfulness. It's not a kingdom of dominance, but of demise. It's not a kingdom of exaltation, but actually endurance. 
It's not a kingdom of adoration, but accusation. You know, Jesus never converts anyone to a comfortable Christianity. Now, if you're in Uganda, you're like, oh, yeah, 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 I get that for sure. Like, if, you, if you're in uh, Pakistan, you become, oh, yeah, you, you, get, you get that. You might die tomorrow because you got baptized. Um, we have a hard time with this. We spend our entire lives, like, trying to figure out ways to be comfortable. And Jesus says, I never called you to be comfortable. Uh, Jesus says, if you spend all your energies trying to be comfortable, you'll miss my calling. Um, see, God's calling on your life will never be comfortable. The only way to achieve his calling is to actually be uncomfortable. Why do we, why do we look to Jesus for comfort, but we don't look to Jesus for his commands? Um, I think, I think we got it. We got it off sometimes. And, and I know that some of you are thinking, but even like, but God is the God of comfort. Like it even says, there's verses, there's passages where it says that God is a God of, of comfort. Like he comforts us. And I'm like, yeah, absolutely, right, right on. It says in, in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, it, verse 3 and 4, it says that he is the God of all comfort who comforts us in all our affliction. Like, God comforts us um, in the middle of affliction. He doesn't make us comfortable, but in the middle of trouble, in the middle of affliction, he comes and he provides comfort in that situation. He doesn't necessarily bring you to a comfortable situation. He actually comforts you in an afflictable situation, if you could say it that way. I've heard it said this way, God comforts the afflicted and afflicts the comfortable. Um. Now, we, I don't know if, you, if you've been here for a little while, you, you get this. Um, we're not the most comfortable church in the world. I don't know if you found that out or not, um, which is, you know, different strokes, different folks. Um, we have a passion as a church to be a multi-ethnic church. We will spend our energy and efforts and resources and everything that we have in our fiber to be representative of the city in which we live in and a foretaste of the city in which we're going to. We're going to do that. Do you know, by the way, that's what our country needs right now? <laughs> um, church needs to stop pointing fingers at other people and start pointing the fingers at itself. If we would, be, if we would change, we could expect the world to change, by the way. We're, we're, we're going to do, did you know that it is actually uncomfortable to be a part of a multi-ethnic church? Did you know that by definition, multi-ethnic means multiple ethnicities, which means there will be other ethnicities represented that aren't your own, which means the only way that you can actually operate in that scenario is if you are comfortable with other ethnicities, which means you've got to be comfortable with being uncomfortable. They're not just that. Um, we, ch we champion at our church radical generosity. Like, I challenge you, we challenge you as pastors to give of everything that you have for the mission of God. Give everything you have for the kingdom of God. Every dime that you possess as a believer is for his kingdom. And we're going to champion it like crazy for you to give of your resources, give of your finances, give of your time, give of everything that you have for his kingdom to see heaven come to earth right here. That's not, that's not comfortable. Um, 
we're going to challenge some of you to uproot your lives and to move around the world to be international church planters in foreign countries. That's, that's not comfortable. But Jesus never called us to be comfortable. See how comfort gets in the way of calling? You, you, you can never accomplish God's calling for your life if you're trying to be comfortable in the process. They actually don't go together. And Jesus is warning his disciples of a um, comfortable Christianity. By the way, um, why, why do we um, only let our kids experience comfortable situations? I, get, I, I go crazy sometimes at the park. And if this is you, I'm, I don't actually know anyone personally that I've just watched it and seen it. Like, you got little Johnny, like, you're like, oh, don't fall. <laughs> he's on the jungle gym. He's running, he's running. You're like, now I recognize that there perhaps are some situations and some children where you need to be, be careful. But it, it, it's like, um, it's mulch. Like, if they, if, they, if they fall, they will bounce. Like, I mean, like. Why, why, do we, why do we want to try to keep our kids in only comfortable situations when that isn't what Jesus is going to call them to later in life? I mean, Jesus never calls us to that. He calls us to his calling, which means you will have to give your life for him. You'll have to give your life for him. The danger of false fascination, the danger of comfortable Christianity. Here's the last one. The danger of Sleepy spirituality. The danger of sleepy spirituality. This week I was thinking about this in preparation for the sermon. And I immediately thought of um, the best actor of all time, uh, Kevin James. And don't deny it. Um, and I thought about the movie that he is in, which is near and dear to my heart, has affected generations um, on the planet, uh, Paul Blart, Mall Cop. And I was <laughs> thinking about him and how he failed the New Jersey Police Academy, but he wasn't going to let that keep him down. He wasn't going to stay in that grave. <laughs> and he got the honor, the prestigious honor of being a mall cop. And the thing that I love about Paul Blard is he takes his job seriously. Uh, regardless if it's an elderly person in a motorized cart or if it's bank robbers with hostages, he is the ultimate Segway soldier and he does his job well. I love that he, uh, love a couple lines from the movie that have impacted me greatly. Um, I took a sworn oath to protect this mall and everyone inside it. And then at the end, my favorite, safety never takes a holiday. <laughs> uh, did you know that the tendency of every Christian is to slide into a sleepy spirituality? And the movie's fiction, by the way. It, it doesn't actually exist. Um, but Paul Blart, he is intentional about his job and about the mission and the task that is at hand, and he isn't going to let anybody get him off his task, and he's going to make sure that he does it every day, day in and day out. you got to appreciate that kind of tenacity, right? Um, 
See, for, for all of us, we have a tendency to get a little sleepy as Christians. Oh, am I only talking to myself? Um, um, we have a, have a tendency to get sleepy spiritually. We, we have a tendency to get lost in um, the weeds. We had a tendency to kind of fall asleep on the agenda and the mission in which God has for us. Jesus says it this way in verse 32. But concerning that day or that hour, I believe referring to his second coming, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Only Father God knows when the second coming is, verse 33. Be on guard. Keep awake. Don't fall asleep, for you do not know when the time will come. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And if Jesus came back right now, would he find you asleep? Verse 37, and what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. The biblical truth and doctrine that Jesus wants us to understand in the scripture is that he's coming back. He's coming back. He ain't done yet. He ain't done. The world isn't finished. His kingdom is coming here right now in part, but then his kingdom will be coming in full force one day. Um, and he's bringing his kingdom, and he will come, and he will rule, and he will reign, and he will make all things right. He will make everything that is crooked straight. He is coming to work for his kingdom and his mission in which he is coming. And in the meantime, we don't get to sleep on the job. In the, in the meantime, we don't get to fall asleep. We don't get to be lazy. We don't get to be idle. But we have to be prepared. We have to be awake. We've got to be ready for when he is coming. It's the second coming. You could say it this way. The purpose of the end times is not prediction, but preparation. Like the whole point of this passage isn't like prediction of when it will happen and where it will happen and how it will happen and blah, 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 blah. The point of the passage isn't prediction. The point of the passage is preparation. It's preparation. And I just got to ask the question today. Um, are you prepared if Jesus comes back today? Um, you know, I got to ask even a, maybe a starter question. Are you looking for Jesus? Are you, are you looking for Jesus? What are you looking for? What are you looking for? What are you hoping for? What are you putting your energy and your effort in? What are you resting the weight of your soul on? It's, it's about Jesus. You can't get sleepy. You've got to wait for him. A few weeks ago, I watched a movie that's probably um, my favorite movie that I've ever seen. Story of a five-year-old Indian boy. True story. Back in 1986, a five-year-old Indian boy by the name of Saru grew up in a home, a poor village in India, rural India, with his family, his mother and his two other siblings. And he was the youngest of the three siblings and the story tells his story about one day as he was leaving his village with his older brother and they were going into the city they were headed to the train station and as they made their way out of the village and to the train station a little ways away from home Saru was told by his older brother to sit on the train bench while he had to go run a quick errand and he would be right back well little five-year-old Saru sat on the bench and waited and waited and waited and the minutes grew longer the minutes turned into hours and he got 
eager about his brother's return, and he didn't see him coming back, and so it began to get dark because the sun was falling, and so he decided that he would get up and walk around and begin to look and search for his brother, and the movie shows him standing on the edge of the train station, yelling to the top of his lungs for his brother, hoping and waiting and looking for him, that, but his brother isn't found. So the only thing that he knows to do is to try to find a safe place to sleep, and so he finds a decommissioned train in the train yard and decides to climb in and to sleep in the passenger train, unknowing to him that early the next morning that train would actually be commissioned and would be headed on a long distance away from his home. The five-year-old boy ends up later recognizing that he is in the great city of Calcutta, which would eventually be 1,500 miles from his original home. For days upon days upon days, he tries to avoid um, really harmful and threatening situations, almost losing his life on a couple situations, until one day, finally, a good Samaritan takes him, recognizing that he doesn't have a family, and takes him to the local orphanage in which he grows up in. A few years later in the orphanage, he would be adopted by a family in Tasmania, Australia, in which he would grow up to live in Australia and get an education and go on to get a college degree. And he was successful, but at the end of the day, he wasn't happy because he knew that he didn't have his family. And though he had tried for years upon years upon years to figure out how to get back to his home, he recognized that there was no way that he would be able to get back home because he didn't actually know where he was from. One night in desperation, he has an epiphany and remembers visually what his village looked like. He remembered that there was a tall tower beside the train station. He remembered some of the paths and some of the roads. And so he went onto Google Maps, Google Earth, and began to search villages. There's thousands upon thousands upon thousands of villages. He put a map on his wall to try to narrow in the different possibilities and X out the villages that he had already searched. And weeks and weeks go by without any results until one day on Google Earth he sees a little tower by a train station that looks like the one where he is from. And he follows the roads and the paths that lead from the train station all the way back and finds the village that he is from. Story goes on, he would get a flight back to India, take several days journey, he would hop on several planes and try to go all the way back to this little village it's been 25 years since he has been at home. He doesn't know what he's going to find or who he's going to see. And as he arrives at the train station and begins the journey down the path, he finds the village in which he grew up. And he begins to meet people and begins to ask them if they know um, his mother. He tells them her name. And after talking with a couple people, someone takes him and leads him down a couple streets in which he is reunited with his mother. And he finds his mother after 25 years of being separated from her. His older brother, he would find out, actually died that night. is why he never came back. And his mother told him on that day, I never stopped looking for you. I never stopped looking for you. I never stopped waiting I never lost hope. I knew that you would come. I didn't sleepy in the process of wondering whether or not that you were going to come back, but I became vigilant in my pursuit and my search for you, knowing and believing that one day you would come back. 
I wonder if we have the same intentionality with, with Jesus. We know that he is coming back. It's not um, a theory. It's not an idea. We know that he is coming back. Church, I think if he was here today, I think Jesus would say to us, stay awake. You live in a culture, perhaps more than any other culture in the history of the world, that has the tendency to let Christians get sleepy on the job. Stay awake. Stay vigilant. We've got a mission. We've got a task at hand. We've got a purpose. Are you on mission? Do the people around you even have a clue that you are a Christian? Do you love the people that are around you? Are you trying to be a part of Jesus' kingdom? Are you trying to help anyone know who Jesus is and what he has done? It's the mission. He said, go and make disciples of every nation, teaching them and baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And lo, I'm with you always, even into the end of the age. We haven't reached the end of the age, which means we're still on mission until he comes back. And I believe that As we wait and as we long, we have hope. We have hope for his coming. We have the ability to say, it is well with our soul. We have the ability to know that it is well because there is a Savior who said it is well and that he is coming back again. Amen? Amen. Father, we ask today that you would allow us not to get sleepy on the job. Um, the task is too great, God. The mission is too significant. The consequences are too severe. So, God, I pray that you would allow us to follow you and be committed to your mission and committed to your purposes until you come back. And, Jesus, we want you to come back soon. Uh, Jesus, we long to see you. Jesus, we long for you. We can't wait till you come back. And so we long for when you come. Jesus, would you come back soon? We say this in your name. Amen.